Amen. Thank you, Fred. Okay, so we continue our study in Isaiah, and last week we, we looked at the famous chapter 6, where Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. This is a famous encounter this prophet has with the Lord. And what's his first response? What's his first response? Huh? He's undone. He's, he just basically kind of collapses, and he recognizes his own uh, uncleanness, inadequacy before an all-holy God. You'll see this similar, uh, let's say, with Peter. After the miracle of the fish, early on in the Gospels, when he gets the draw to fish and he realizes it's the Lord, he says, depart from me, Lord, for I'm, I'm a sinner. You know, same thing with John in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. He gets that revelation of the glorified, uh, our glorified Lord, and he just, he, he's on, it, 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 this is rather consistent. You'll see the same thing happening with Daniel. Uh, so uh, he says, I'm, I, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell with, among a people of unclean lips. And then, of course, the angel takes the coal of fire, touches his lips, and basically sanctifies his lips. In other words, he's now going to be sanctified uh, for the use of the Lord. And, and this is why, then he says, who will, I, who will, he says in verse 6, who will go for us, uh, verse 8, uh, implied here is some plurality contained within the Godhead. We'll look at the Trinity later in the, in the book of Isaiah. And then, of course, he says this famous quote, here I am, send me. This, this volunteer, I'm ready to go now. So we see he's, he's confronted, he sees the Lord, he's cleansed, and now he's commissioned. And even though he's told here, and this is where we left off last week, where it says um, in verse 9 and 10, he says, and he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, they, they keep on hearing, but they do not understand. They keep on seeing, but they do not perceive. Make their heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and they hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return and be healed. This is a famous passage that will occur uh, six times uh, in the New Testament. It's a very important passage. What, he, what is he saying here in your own words? We'll look at some of these passages where, where our Lord will actually quote this. What is, what is he, God saying to Isaiah in terms of his commissioning message? Is, is, it, is it a hopeful message? Is it a heart? What's he saying? You're, why? What is the trouble essentially? They're not going to respond to your message. He, he says they're basically, they have eyes but they don't see, they have ears but they don't hear, they have hearts that are hardened, they can't receive uh, this message. Uh, if, if, I mean if you turn, you'll see, let's just look at one or two of these in the New Testament. If you look at John chapter 12, the Gospel of John chapter 12, this is after Jesus has given his famous uh, sermons, his messages, his miracles. And uh, chapter 12, and if somebody could read verse um, 37 uh, through 39, please. John chapter 12, 37 through 39. No, that, that's, 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 he's quoting right from uh, these passages um, 
where, where we just read. It, and they've seen Jesus' miracles, and they heard his words, but why can't they receive it? Why can't they receive it? Their eyes are blinded. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them whom the God of this age has blinded. Okay, so we, we recognize that. And then they, their hearts may not be ready. Remember the sower and the seed? Remember, Pastor just talked about it. The first spreading of the seed landed where? Stony ground. What, what was the ground? I mean, the, the seed is, is, is the word of God. But what is, in that parable, what is the, what is the ground? What is the soil? Huh? Our hearts. Our hearts. And there's no room for that seed to penetrate. Hard-heartedness prevents the gospel. Look at one more example of this uh, in Acts. Look at the last chapter in the book of Acts. Um, this one, Paul is in prison. He's kind of like under house arrest. And so people come to him and he says, um, Acts 28, last chapter, a group of people come to Paul, mostly Jews. Uh, it says here, um, verse 22, but we desire to hear from you what you think concerning this sect. Uh, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. That's the emerging Christian church. So when they appointed him a day, many came to his lodging, and he explained and solemnly testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning uh, Jesus from the law of Moses, the prophets, from morning till evening. So you can tell he's got a Jewish audience because he's using the Old Testament. Okay, that's when it says Moses and the prophets, basically that means the Old Testament. He's using the Old Testament to make his case for Christ. You understand how powerful this is? This is, this is really powerful when we understand how to use the Old Testament to validate the claims of Jesus Christ. Okay, so then it says, verse 25, uh, 24, and some were persuaded by the things that were spoken, and some disbelieved. That's not an uncommon response. Some believe, some are curious, some are interested, some don't believe, some mock. you got the whole range kind of going on. And so, um, verse 25, so when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said this word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear, shall not understand. Seeing you will see and not perceive. The hearts of the people have grown dull. He's quoting exactly where we are in Isaiah 6. Do you see how pertinent this is? Any thoughts on this? You know, you see how Paul uses the Old Testament and he brings it forward and he's just making his case. Isaiah was preaching to predominantly what? Audience. Jewish. You know, he was doing the southern kingdom, which was where Jerusalem was and where Judah and uh, the tribe of Benjamin lived. And, and they're not going to receive his message. They're not going to. Yes, Joyce. So I'm uh, going to be talking about turning their hearts or turning repentance. Right. Is it they can't repent because they can't see their sin, or, or they see their sin but they don't want to repent? What came first? Good question. Harvey, what came first? Oh, that's a good question in Genesis. We'll answer that one later. But has everybody heard that question? What, do you, what would be a good response to that? that? That's a very good question. Well, he hardened Pharaoh's heart. After, there was no way Pharaoh was ever going to change his mind. He was, so he just used it. So uh, these people are kind of already under the bus. 
Well, now, don't forget, some do believe, even in this passage, right? But others don't. So what is it? I mean, there's several issues going on here, but why? I mean, can this passage from Isaiah apply to our modern-day world? I mean, is the Word of God going out today? How many saw Billy Graham's funeral? Did the Word of God, the, cl the clarity of the gospel go out there? Not just in America, but... <laughs> Do people respond and go, I want that, it's a free gift, it's going to change my life, I'll have eternal security, I'll be with it. Or what? Or does it fall on hard ground? You see? Both. Both. But, by and large, what happened with Isaiah, in terms of the rejection and the coming judgment, because remember, about 110 years later, where he's preaching, the southern kingdom is going to be destroyed completely by the Babylonians. So, too, in our day and age, if people continually refuse to receive God's word, there is a coming judgment. That's why John the Baptist and Jesus start out their ministry by saying, repent and flee the wrath to come. You see, we don't hear a lot about that, but there's, there's a real sense of, like, urgency or, like, we got to get this right. You know, we got to, it's, it's a, it's a, it literally is a matter of life and death. But here they rejected. Yes, somebody else had their hand up. Please. The pastor's words take the dust off of your shoes kind of thing. Does that apply to this kind of rejection? That's a good point because if you look, what Paul's response is what in verse 28 and 29? If somebody would read that, please. It says, Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Okay, so he, he, he went to his people. Remember, he always had a burden for his people, the Jewish people. I mean, he was a rabbi. And it says in Romans 9, 10, and 11 how he, he would give his own life for his people. Remember, he says... But when you reject, 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 he's going to go to an audience that's going to receive, receive, receive. Is it? Same thing on the mission field. Remember a pastor talked, you look for a peaceful house, or a house of peace? Yeah. That thing has not changed in 2,000 years. If you're in Africa or Southeast Asia where there's very limited gospel or you know, the word of God, certainly no churches, you're looking for a house of peace. We go into Thai villages and a Thai Christian would say, my cousin lives up there and he heard about Christianity it could, it could, we could pray and maybe his child will be healed of fever. We can pray and they won't have fear of evil spirits. And so as, as they come together, that, that welcoming house can actually be uh, an incubator, could be a starting place for a potential church. Do you understand? You're not going to go continually where you're catching the rejection. Just might not be time for the people yet. But you want to go to that place that's most receptive. Okay. But you don't, I, I agree with Pastor Chris where he says you don't dismiss these people out of hand because the timing might not be ready. And always remember this, even though they reject the message, even here with Paul, where was that message in his all-day explanation? I mean, he goes, I, I, I'm intrigued by this, he goes from morning till noon preaching Christ from the Old Testament. Morning till noon, I like to have those tapes. Yeah. You know, but, <laughs> you know, but I mean, think about it morning till noon we really should be skillful people in using the old with the new and coupling it together because it's it's such a solid foundation we have and nobody else no other religion or philosophy has a dual system you know an old testament two books 
that perfectly coincide in prophetical harmony. But that's a good point, and, and we should never give up on people because God's mercies are new every morning. Yes, Joyce. But it also makes me think that God knows the future. He knows our responses because He's sovereign, and He's using maybe a heart or even a better purpose. Or is it because when something happens, like the hearts are hardened, here Paul saying, I'm going to Gentiles. I'm going to preach to Gentiles so that all, no one is lost. All of them have the opportunity. Well, when he was commissioned by the Lord, who was he really sent to? Gentiles. Gentiles. See, he was an apostle to the Gentiles. He really was. But he wanted to win Jews also. So he, was, he always had that going on. But, again, we come to this whole thing, this hardness. I just want to um, show you that this can literally happen where people don't want the word of God. If you look at, uh, for example, um, in Acts chapter 7, and we'll move back to Isaiah after this, but this is such a graphic illustration of when people have closed eyes and closed ears. This is the famous sermon by Stephen. We only have one recorded sermon that he gives, it costs him his life, uh, but he goes through the Old Testament. I mean, we won't do it, but I mean, he basically gives this tremendous sermon expositing the Old Testament and how it all focuses on Jesus Christ, but after they hear him, um, look, look what their response is in verse 57. Notice that? They literally covered their ears. Remember it says they have eyes they don't see, ears they don't hear. Here you're actually seeing that, covering their ears. And of course, after that, they're going to kill him. Uh, they don't like the message. You will never stop the message. Therefore, you stop what? The messenger. There are countries today that are stopping their ears to the gospel. We live right on the Thai Myanmar border, formerly Burma, and they try to jam even internet uh, that uh, was coming in that had uh, any words like uh, Christian or Jesus or you know it didn't work because you can get in you can get in but there are countries that that will limit they'll stop their ears from hearing the gospel today okay so it, what Isaiah is saying way back here has application today any closing we'll go back to Isaiah now now when you look at Isaiah um, chapter 7 it says, now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz. Now this is a new king because chapter 6, verse 1, it located us with Uzziah. King Uzziah died. Now we have this new king on the throne, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah. And he says, Rezin, the king of Syria, Pekah, the son of Remelah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war. So what's going on here to set the geographical kind of scene? Uh, here you have... There you have what's called the Northern Kingdom. Those are the 10 tribes. That's called Israel, okay? That, that up in this region up here, all through here. And here, the, the Southern is Judah, that's where Jerusalem is, and Benjamin, that, that'll be a smaller, only those two tribes. So these guys have gone into idolatry, big time. It's, it's infecting the Southern Kingdom now, uh, we're gonna see in a minute, but here is the Northern Kingdom and we're going to see that, uh, to kind of show you some of the things that are going on here. Here's Syria. They're teaming up 
with the northern kingdom, the Samaritan, and they're coming against Judah down here. They're teaming up with this bunch here, the ten tribe, and they're coming, they're threatening. What, what this guy is going to do, he's going to try to make an alliance with Assyria, which is growing in power. You know, when you set the geographical scene here in context, uh, they're going to come down, we're going to see in a little bit in Isaiah, and just sweep down and just decimate this northern kingdom. What's emerging a century later is Babylon. We won't, we'll get that later. But that kind of sets the scene. Any question just on, you're, you're in the year about 730 B.C., 730 years before Christ. And this is what's happening. And this, Judah, under this king, is under a big-time threat. You know, he, it's, you know, it's hard what this would be like, but I mean, it's just all these people are, uh, the military is coming against them. And he is not a good man. I mean, if you keep your place here and look at 2 Kings chapter 16 for a moment. 2 Kings uh, chapter 16. Uh, just to get a sense of what this guy was like. Um, and if somebody would read the loud voice, chapter 16, 2 Kings chapter 16. Uh, one through four, please. And this gives you an idea of this man's spiritual spirituality, if you will. And he's the king. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Romalia, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under each green tree. Okay, thank you. What does that tell you about him? What was he doing? Now, he's king of Judah. This is where the temple is. He's in Jerusalem. You know, what's he doing, essentially? He's sacrificing his own son. We'll see this later, what it meant to have a child go through the fire. This, 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 this uh, uh, false religion of Moloch and these other places. In the Hinnon Valley, we were actually alongside this area where this sacrifices took place. He set up high places. He set up sacred groves. All this talks about... Uh, idolatry, demonic, occultic, very immoral practices. And he's doing it, you see? And he's, and he's the king. He's leading his people down that road. Um, you can jot this down. You don't have to turn to it. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 19, it says about him, that's 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 19, For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had encouraged moral decline in Judah, and have been continually unfaithful to the Lord. That's 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9. So you see, uh, this king is a wicked king. And this is one more reason they're going to be going under judgment. They're in this like moral slide. They're, they're kind of in this slide. And of course, God said, look, if you'll turn to me, if you'll repent, if you'll serve me, what will happen? Uh huh? Yeah, I will forgive you. I will restore you. But more practically, when you got Assyria here, you got Samaria, you got I will I will protect you. That's the key because 
even to this day when you see Israel, it's like, it's like a postage stamp. You know, I mean, amidst you know, all these big entities, these countries, back then you had Egypt, you had Assyria, you had Syria, you had Babylonia on the rise. There was nothing they could do, in a sense, to protect themselves. They just, they were never really a militarized country, if you understand. But as long as they'd stay close to the Lord, uh, the shepherd, as you will, he would protect the flock. When they didn't, then he says, this is coming, I'm warning you, here's what's going to happen, and sure enough, it's going to happen. You understand? Any thoughts on that? It's a, it's a rather common theme. You really see this cycle work itself out in the book of Judges. Okay, let's go back here to Isaiah. So this is the situation we pick up here in Isaiah chapter 7. Okay, now, and, and it was told to the house of David, that's Judah, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom, so his heart, that's the king's heart, and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. What does that tell you about? He's, Isaiah is very poetic, in case you haven't known. What does that tell you about his heart? He's trembling. He's shaking. He, he doesn't know what's coming next. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and take your son, Shir Jishab, your son, to the end of the aqueduct, from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And here we see this really locates it geographically. A lot of people think this could be the big pool on the northern part of Jerusalem, Bethsaida. We're not real sure, but he, he locates this, this place. The king may have been going out there to check all his water supplies. Because if he's, he's thinking, if the enemy's coming, i got to make sure our water is secured. Because they always needed the water so the people inside the city could survive once they were encompassed by the enemy. This is true all the way through the Israel's history. And, and he says, God told Isaiah, say to him, take heed and be quiet. I like this advice. Take heed, number one, be quiet, do not fear, do not be faint-hearted, for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria, the son of Rambalah, because Syria and Ephraim and the son of Ramallah have plotted against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall ourselves and set a king over it. God's basically saying, okay, he's, he's sending Isaiah to calm him down. He's saying, settle down, listen to me, take heed. Even though these two um, forces are coming against you, don't worry, I can take care of them. Is basically what he's going to say here. If you'll do what I say. What, what, what this guy's problem is, he, he's quick to run and make an alliance uh, with foreign powers. You see, we could go further into in his background if we looked at Kings and in Chronicles. He actually goes and he, he gets involved in Damascus and these other places, and he even brings back their worship systems to Jerusalem. He, he, he doesn't lean on the Lord. He doesn't rely on the Lord is, is his basic problem. So God gives him a chance here. And thus saith the Lord God, it shall not stand, see he's saying these guys won't stand, nor shall it come to pass, it's not going to happen. For the head of Syria is Damascus, still is to this day, and the head of Damascus is resin. Uh, with 65 years, Ephraim will be broken. So here's a prophecy, he's saying, look, Syria is going to be crushed, and then the northern kingdom, Ephraim, uh, is going to be crushed. Don't worry, within 65 years so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is Remiah's son. If you will not believe, 
surely you shall not be established. In other words, he's saying, believe me, God is saying, believe my word that the prophet has given to you. If you don't, then you're, gonna, you're leaving yourself and your people wide open. Any thoughts on this? Yes, please, Marie. Yeah, how so? This is a recurring theme. Old Testament, New Testament. Hear God's word and obey God's word. I hate to quote a little children's song, but trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy. Well, I mean, this is what he's saying here. Trusting God's word. Obey God's word. Seek God as your refuge, not these foreign alliances that are going to bring in their military power as well as their gods and their idols and all these occultic practices. Trust in God. You can be secure. I'll cover you with my wings. It's like when Jesus said to Jerusalem, he's overlooking Jerusalem, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have covered you uh, with my wings like a mother hen, but you would not, you see? And then he says, thusly, your house has left you desolate. You know, it's like the adage, you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Yeah, right. You know, so God's telling us, if we don't stand for our faith. This is true. All, you know, when you fast forward today, um, I, I think it was, um, who made that quote? It was uh, the British fella, um, the writer. Uh, Chamberlain, uh, I'll think of it. It was a C.S. Lewis. But he said that very quote. Uh, the idea being today, if you'll notice, like things that are going on in Europe and that, man's going to believe in something. It's, it, man will never not believe in something. He's going to have some kind of worldview. But what is replacing, if you look at Western Europe today, the Christian core, not that it was ever Christian. I don't think any country was ever a theocracy and totally Christian. But what I mean, it was that was the core. As that is going and leaving, something is going to rush in and fill that whether it's humanism, atheism, Islam, some, the occult, you know, it's going to come in. Because man is by nature spiritual, because we're hardwired. We're made in the image of God, even though that's a fallen image. We still seek transcendence. We seek meaning in something. Something's going to fill that. And same way here. If they're leaving the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if they're leaving the word of God, dismissing the prophets, they're going to embrace something. And it's like happening right before our eyes. Yes, Bob. Judy got this in her class this morning on reintegration. Everybody puts faith in something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's just what, what, what is, and I find it interesting how these things have application. You don't want to stretch it too much, but you see certain themes are applied. There's nothing new under the sun, let me say that. And so these have application, um, even in our time. Um, now, verse 10 of Isaiah says, Moreover, the Lord spoke again, to Ahaz saying, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. What's he saying to him now? He's, he's trying to validate his word. He's trying to say, um, I'm telling you this, this is true. Therefore, if you want to know it's true, what's he saying to Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah? Give me, uh, what do you want me to do to prove it? Remember in Jesus' time, 
they would always say to him, uh, give us a sign. You know, they'd say, give us a sign. Uh, and, uh, you know, Jesus says, well, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh a sign. They'll have no sign but the sign of Jonah. But, as we saw in John chapter 12, after Jesus did all kinds of miracles, what John calls signs, they still didn't believe. You see, they still didn't believe his works, and they didn't believe his words. Does that make sense? You see? And so he's saying to Ahaz, look, I, I want you to believe, I want you to obey me, ask me for a sign. And what limits does he put on this sign? From the height above to the below. You want me to stop the sun? You want me to do this? You want me to do that? What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? It's like Jesus. What, you know, what more do you want him to do? Is kind of like he says at the end of his ministry. You know, he raises the dead. He walks on water. He stills the storms. He heals the deaf, the blind, get eyesight. What, you know, he's fulfilling all this prophecy. What more can he do? Yeah, that's what John says. He did many more that are recorded. So he's kind of saying it. And what is King Ahaz's response? I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. You're not testing the Lord when he says to you, ask of me a sign. You get it? I mean, he's, he, he's acting in a sense piously, but the reason he doesn't trust the Lord if he trusted the Lord, he wouldn't be making all these alliances with others. He doesn't trust the Lord, let alone his prophet. And he says, oh, I won't test the Lord. I won't try the Lord. After God says, hey, ask of me and I will give you a sign. I will do something to validate my word. So he says, but Ahaz said, okay, then he says, verse 13. Then he says, hear now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to worry men, weary men? But will you weary my God also? He's saying, he's kind of like almost, Isaiah's almost saying he's like you're playing games. You know, he's saying you don't, you don't want to believe. You don't even want God after he's promised you. He would show you. He would reveal his strong arm in some type of a miracle. You don't want that. He says you're just weary in God. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold. Now, remember, he's saying it's a sign. That, that's something... More than regular, it's a sign. It's something spectacular. Behold, often this word "behold" is it's a it's a declarative uh, announcement. Behold, listen up. Here, you know, behold the Lamb of God. It's kind of a deal. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, now I just want to go back here. Here's where this is all taking place. It's right here in Jerusalem. This is a modern day map of, of the, you see the West Bank here and of course the Galilee region up here there's Syria there even to this day this place up here even on our trip this was pagan ridden this is where Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal this is where the tribe of Dan establishes a pagan altar this is where Jesus will go to Caesarea Philippi I'll bring some of these slides in the future but the, you guys that have been there, you know, and there's this huge cave-like structure in the Greco-Roman world. They believe that was the gates of hell because it was the underworld entry. They had temples there, and that's where Jesus goes and says, upon this rock I'll build my church, and what? The gates of hell should not prevail. He does it at that very spot. <coughs> so this place up here is really uh, infiltrated with demonic uh, cultic activity. It goes down this way, and right here, is your demarcation, the southern and the northern, right there. And so now he's going to say, 
we're going to look at this birth, 714, because for one thing, it could have a near fulfillment. We'll look at that in a minute. But we're going to know right from the New Testament, uh, Matthew will use this without a doubt. This is a passage in prophetic fulfillment by Jesus Christ. But miracle births are not a new thing in the Bible, okay? That is to say, divine intervention. Because if you look at Isaac, what made Isaac's birth so unique? What was the situation with Abraham and Sarah? Huh? Matter of fact, when Abraham heard the news, and Isaac heard the news, they both, they both laughed. Okay? That's why you don't have, you know, showers for newborn babies at nursing homes, I guess. You know, you just don't. But I mean, it, it's, so, it's so impossible. It's so impossible. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are. So you see this idea of a miracle or at least a divine intervention to bring forth this promised child. Uh, Jacob, remember Rebecca could not have children. She said to her husband, you know, I want to, he says, I'm not, you can't ask me. I'm not in the place of God. Only God can open the woman. And she has the twins. Uh, Joseph, Samson, do you remember his, his parents? Uh, they were barren and they met the angel of the Lord. He says, you're going to have this son, a special son. And he'll, he'll take the vow of a Nazarite, even from a child. He won't drink wine. Either. You know, um, Samuel, when Hannah, you know, she cried out in the temple. They, it required divine. So what I'm getting at, the idea of a special birth or a miraculous birth <coughs> is not uncommon. And often this is God visits or the angel of the Lord visits. Often they'll tell when the baby is to be born. Sometimes they'll give special directions or they'll name the baby prior to the birth. You understand? Just, you see this is rather consistent. Uh, John the Baptist, you know, I mean, he's, he's, the New Testament opens and his father is in the temple offering incense and he says, your wife, Elizabeth, is going to have a son. And it says they're barren and they're beyond years. Two things, two strikes to get barren. And he can't believe it. Of course he can't believe it. How could this be? And, and of course they'll say his name will be John and he'll be you know, prepare the way before. So uh, he'll come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So again, this I, so when people have a hard time accepting the virgin birth, all the virgin birth is the ultimate miracle of a miracle birth. Do you understand it? It's not a new thing, divine intervention for the birth of a child, a promised child at that, but it's just like everything about our Lord, it's the highest miracle. Yes, please. Isn't it a coincidence that Jesus is number well, yeah, I mean, yeah. but these are just some of them. You might find others there, but it is, it is significant that this is not a new thing where God intervenes in, the, in almost what I would call the impossible birth of a baby. Any other thoughts on this, if you track it along? Okay, now, of course, in Matthew 1, and she, she'll bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus, he shall save his people from their sins. And now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord, by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin who shall be with child shall bring forth a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. He's, he's pulling this Isaiah 7:14 fast forward uh, into uh, the birth narrative of our Lord, right? Uh, very important we understand that. I mean, here's the thing. In our day and age, do you think these basic 
killer doctrines of the Christian faith are under attack. What, okay, virgin birth. What others are under attack today? The resurrection. Physical resurrection. The deity of Jesus. Pardon me? I'm the way, the truth. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Okay? The scriptures. The inerrancy, the inerrancy of the scripture or the sufficiency of the scriptures. All scriptures given by inspiration. All of these things, uh, they're not, these attacks are not necessarily all coming from the outside. Okay? The enemy at the, outside the gate, so to speak. They're in, these are coming into the church, into Christendom itself. Do you understand this principle? And that's why we have to know what we must know. And, and, and say, well, why do I believe that? Why is that such? A, why is the virgin birth such an essential doctrine? I mean, you know, non-negotiable. Okay, it was prophesied. Some things are negotiable, you know, in, the, in Christian faith and practice. For example, how many hymns do we sing in the morning? You know, what color is the carpet? So, some societies, they have men sit on this side, women on this. Some take shoes off before they come. What I'm getting at is certain things are non-negotiable. Why is the virgin birth? It's fulfillment of prophecy, but... Okay, he can't be, he can't, he can't come the natural way because all have sinned. Everyone has fallen through Adam, through the man, all, all sinned through Adam. Plus, Jesus says, I come from above. I, I go back above. I'm not of this world. He'll say that repeatedly in the Gospel of John. We have to believe that Jesus is eternal. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Do you understand? Uh, if we don't see that, he enters into time and space when the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. But he's eternal. He wasn't one day, and I've, I've read literature and I've been at conferences and I'm surprised how this thing is getting uh, watered down. It really is. You know, they go, well, maybe as baptism he received the spirit and then he became this godlike person. You know, all these kind of things. Not so. His father was not Joseph, okay? He had one father, his heavenly father, only begotten of the father, okay? So this, this principle, this doctrine of the, of the virgin birth is extremely important. Somebody else had their hand up on this? Yes. Well, as I said in the Garden of Eden, that you know, your offspring, that mm. typically to be the first Yeah, we'll look at that in one, let's see. Uh, here, the nature of the birth, and woman between thy seed. He's talking to Satan here. Thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The seed of a woman, like you say, that, that, that's, that's, this is what the early gospel here, the proto-evangelum, you know, this, this like first gospel, that Satan is going to be defeated. He's going to get what they call the headshot, the capitas, you know, boom, he's going to be defeated. But in the process, what's he going to do to the seed of the woman? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, okay? Do you understand? So early on, to your point, Beth, we see this hint that this coming one would be a unique birth, a special birth. He enters the world in a special way. He exits the world in a special way, okay? Uh, let's see. That was all I had in that, okay. So now, 
it says here, um, curds and honey he shall, I'm in verse 15 of the John chapter, curds and honey he shall eat, and uh, that he may know how to refuse evil and choose good. For before the child shall know that refuse evil and choose good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Now, here's what may be happening here, and I'll put this out there and you can do your own research. This could have new, near fulfillment and far fulfillment. Far fulfillment is this virgin is, uh, as Matthew says, this is the virgin born child, this is Jesus Christ. Now, could a child be born into this royal household, a woman is not married, a young maiden, virgin, gets married, conceives, they could call their children Emmanuel, just like today, you, you know, you could call a child Yeshua or Joshua. And in Spanish cultures, they actually call him Jesus or De Jesus. You see, it's not that out of the common. But it says before uh, he knows how to choose good and evil, uh, this is like the age of accountability. Some would suggest bar mitzvah, you know, that 12 years, 10 years, 8 years, whatever it might be. Your enemies are going to be destroyed. You don't have to worry about Syria anymore. And then that, that, that works itself out in that time frame, okay? So it could have near fulfillment, but the key here, it has the fulfillment of our Lord. And now you'll see this in the scriptures, and I won't develop it too much. You'll see this sometimes, like in Hosea 11, verse 1, it says, out of Egypt, what? I have called my son. That's when God brought his people out of the house of bondage. But that's applied to Jesus. Okay, when he and the Holy the family come back out of Egypt after they escape uh, Herod. Do you understand there's near fulfillment, far fulfillment? How about when the, the serpent, they were complaining in the wilderness, and God says, make a serpent, a uh, brazen serpent, lift it up, everybody that looks at it will be healed. At Jesus in John chapter um, 3 says, as Moses raised the serpent in the wilderness, so too the Son of Man must be lifted up. Anybody that believes upon him shall have eternal life. Do you see the near in the far. Is any question on this? In, in the study of prophecy, this is not uncommon. Yes? No. <laughs> Anyhow, we'll develop this. We'll develop this. Back. But that, that, the, the, the crucial element here is because when we get to 7, to 8, to 9, 11 in Isaiah, it all starts to be about Emmanuel. It's all about this coming one. This, this one that's going to uh, the Holy One of Israel, or Emmanuel, or this virgin-born one. And later on in Isaiah, we're going to actually see, when he comes, he's going to do miracles. The deaf will hear, the eyes, without a doubt, it's, it's in spades. Okay, then he says, um, verse 17, The Lord will bring the king of Assyria upon you and your people and your father's house. Days have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will whistle for, for the farthest parts of the Egypt and the bee that this is all descriptive, poetic description of he's bringing people in here to defeat the northern kingdom. And, and he says in verse 20, in the same day the Lord will shave the hired razor, those beyond the river. And he's, what he's setting up here is that um, this is the coming judgment. But, but again, the key here is will this king obey the word of God that's coming from the prophet Isaiah. And of course, what's his response? He won't do it. He will not do it. And, and, and long story short on that, um, what they're going to get into actually is about cultic activities. If you just jump ahead uh, in verse 19 of chapter 8, 
if somebody would read verse 19. These are kind of go together. When men come to consult mediums and spirits, spirits who whisper and mutter, should not the people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead and behalf of the living? See, so what's going on here? Where are they going for advice? God just gave this sterling advice and, and, and this uh, uh, promise. They're going to fortune tellers. They're going to wizards. They're going to sorcerers. They're going to other sources for revelation. Uh, study ancient history. Uh, they would have soothsayers. You know, Babylonians have the Chaldeans. Other. It's really remarkable. Uh, one of the things Marie and I teach new missionaries is this whole thing of the involvement of the occult in everyday life in these cultures in Africa and Asia, but how it influences leadership, okay? Anyone that studied the life of Hitler or, or Karl Marx or these others, these men were heavily involved in occultic activity. They, they opened doors to demonic activity. But this is nothing new. This goes back almost 3,000 years when these guys are going to mediums, they're going to whispers, uh, wizards. Uh, today you would call them channelers. Uh, you know, people pay big money to go to these kind of things. Uh, astrology, casting horoscopes, anything to give an edge. People get into this kind of activity because they're after power. Uh, they want power over people or they want power over to know a little about the future. They want to know something. Usually it's in these realms. And he said, why do you seek the dead among the living? Where did you hear that phrase before? The angel said, why, you know, when they come to the empty tomb, why do you seek the living among the dead? Somebody had a thought on any of this? Okay, and then he'll say this. This is very important, verse 20. To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because what? There is no light in them. You understand? If, they, if they're not interested in the word of God, if they want to walk in darkness the occult, all this other stuff, because there's no light. They don't want the light. And, you know, how many remember, not remember, but ever read, was it Chamberlain right before World War II says, uh, he saw what was going on with Nazi Germany, he says all the lights in Europe are what? All the lights in Europe are going out. Remember, he says there's, there's, there's darkness, there's oppression. Well, in a sense, a spiritual sense, you can look around the world where there was once, for example, our mission organization was founded in London, England. I mean, it's over 100 years old. That country, it sent out missionaries to the ends of the earth. Now it is in difficult position, condition, spiritually. Spain, France, okay? I don't know how many have traveled abroad of late, but I mean, I have friends that travel. They say, you can't believe, you know, the disbelief and the lack. Churches are now museums or their mosques or their gift shops or their room and board or something. I don't know, but it's just... They're empty. They're empty, yes. So this, this is... Because why? They don't want the light of God's word. It says in Psalms, the entrance of thy word giveth light. You see, that's why, you know, places like Bay Presbyterian, the light, it's still a lighthouse after a hundred years. That's what you're looking for, where the light still goes, the light's still bright. Uh, the light shine, in missions, they say that light shines farthest, that shines brightest at home. You know, if we keep the fire and tend the fires, it, 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 can reach, it can reach out to the ends of the earth. So here's what he says in chapter 8. And he, and he says, now as a result, they will, verse 21 of chapter 8, they will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry. And it shall happen when they are hungry, 
they will be enraged and curse their king and what? Their God. And look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom and anguish, and they will be driven out into darkness. You know, it just, this, this, again, this consistent pattern. If, if this is the light, Jesus is the light of the world, God's word is light. It's a light unto our path. It's a lamp unto our uh, feet. If we turn our back on light, then we're walking in darkness. We're walking in shadow, you see. That's, it's just what it is. And that, that's where it gets problematic. And, and I'll start wrapping it up here, but that's, that's where the issue is with Isaiah right now, with this, this, this country, these people. Uh, and you can see God does, the north is gone, but he doesn't want the south to go that same direction because Jerusalem's there and the temple, and it's his people. But they don't want it, they're stiff-necked. They don't want it to go. But through it all, he keeps saying, there's a remnant, and he says, there's coming this one. It's kind of like a bright light, so to speak, at the end of the tunnel. There's this coming one. And, of course, he's not just going to be for Israel. He's got to be for all the Gentiles, this light onto the Gentiles. Any yes, Susan. There was an article in the paper about the Enchanter's Church in Chicago. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, um, there's a very interesting story. It was Dietrich Barnhofer was going uh, to a seminary in New York. And the seminary was, at one time, I don't know if it was Union or what, it was going kind of sideways. And uh, so he, his friend came from Africa, was a pastor from Africa. And he took him to one of these churches in New York that really went liberal and no longer adhered to the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. And he listened to this sermon and on his way out, he said to his African pastor friend, he says, what did you think of the sermon? And he says, well, I think they've taken my Lord, but I don't know where they laid him. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it's the, the crucial issue is the person of Jesus Christ. The, the critical issue is God's word true. You know, is God's word effectual? Is, will God's word work in your life? Will it work in my life? Does God want to bless, protect, guide, provide? You know, all these things like he wanted to do with uh, ancient Israel. So next week we'll pick up on that and we'll start moving into these really powerful, I think, Emmanuel chapters. Uh, 7, 9, and 11 in particular. 7, 9, and 11 in particular. Any closing thoughts? Okay. Yes. I would my children, my grandchildren. Uh-huh. A little bit louder. Number one, don't depend on the church totally. It's auxiliary and complementary, but where, where, do, where should children get discipled? That's the key. That is the key. When parents view their responsibility to raise Daniels, and Danielettes, I guess, to, to, to live and be influential in a Babylonian world. That's what we want. I mean, we, we as parents, mother, father, grandparent, grandparent, are responsible for the discipleship of our children so that the church will assist and help. Uh, but if we look to the church to, 
to do it. It's, it's, it's putting too much on the church because they don't have them every day when you sit down, when you rise, when you go out, when you come in. You know, that's the, that critical issue because, uh, I mean, I think we all in here could have ones that were raised like that and they ended up being Daniels. They're very influential in a fallen world. We're called to be salt of the earth and light in the world. Or others that were not and are not. Yes, Marie? Uh, A little bit louder. I think we have to see how highly resourced we are as a people. I mean, we really are. Uh, we see the world, or the culture in decline or whatever, but we are really highly resourced people. Uh, just to have the word of God in our own language, let alone to have pastors, teachers. Uh, I mean, you know, you turn on the radio, like 103.3, you're getting some good teaching on a regular basis, you know. Uh, I don't compete with radio stations, but I'm just saying, you have all these, these, these resources. I don't think sometimes we realize how highly resourced we are, even with each other. You know, everyone has different giftings, and they, you know, just, I mean, little Ellie here telling us we're going to have this event next week, and that, that's really to, to strengthen fellowship and to, and to help. Yeah, I agree. And, and that, yeah, definitely. I have, definitely. Do we have a focus to equip the equipers? Yeah, I mean, how many have ever sat under Michael Shenigo's teaching? Like he's doing, this, this kid's like a gift of the church. I mean, this man's like a gift of the church. I mean, really, what he understands in terms of manuscripts and manuscript evidence, I've not seen the likes of this uh, in a while. He's been here several years, and he's taught whenever the opening is here. Sad to say he's now going to Columbus, but Columbus will be blessed by Michael. But I'm just saying, we are, we are really enriched people. I'll close on that. Yes? We, we need to pray for people like him that start this and that whatever that red-eye, ready, or what the, the college thing that he does when he was involved with in Ohio State, yeah. that actually helps the kids on campus yeah. learn the apologetics so they can go. Maybe she's going to start. <laughs> On that note, who would like to close in prayer?